Hebrews chapter 9, it's a long one, but you can follow along as I read it aloud. This is the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. And into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression, transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into not into entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to, had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that at this time you would speak. Uh, at the very beginning of our worship service in the call to worship, one of the things that we uh, heard from you is that you are a God who speaks and summons. 
And so by way of your Holy Spirit, make your word alive to us today in this moment. May we rejoice in what Christ has done and may we know him deeply. May you speak to us in ways that are personal and individual and give us the convictions that, uh, of the things we ought to be convicted of um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, we are going through a series uh, this summer through the book of Hebrews. And, you know, the book of Hebrews is not the easiest book to read and to understand. Uh, but to kind of anchor, you know, all of this uh, heavy and deep theology, what we're doing is we're calling this series Jesus is Better. Hebrews is written to a community of Jewish believers, and they have been uh, suffering. They've been persecuted for their faith. And therefore, as a result of that, some people are in danger of falling away from their faith in Jesus Christ. And in order to encourage this community and in order to encourage uh, certain people not to fall away, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's basically saying, don't fall away, persevere, press on, because Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Last week, what we started to do is we started talking about an important concept in the Bible called the covenant. And if you were here last week, bear with me a little bit because some of this is going to be repetition. But... Uh, starting last week, uh, the author of Hebrews is basically comparing what is called the Old Covenant, and he's comparing it to the New Covenant. The Old Covenant are things like the law and things like the priestly sacrifices of the Old Testament, and the New Covenant comes in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he's basically saying this, this New Covenant that comes in Jesus is much better than the Old Covenant. And uh, I gave this illustration that I'm going to tweak because I, I, I thought about this illustration and uh, I'm going to make it a little bit better, I think, for an American audience. Uh, have you ever played the game foosball, right? That little soccer game where you, you know, you hit the ball with your, you know, you, you twist like the little men. Uh, <clears throat> you know, that, that game foosball, there's similarities between that game and soccer in many ways, right? Um, but at the same time, it's not the same thing as actual soccer. In foosball, you use your wrist to hit the ball and you use these like little wooden pieces that are supposed to be soccer players and you hit a little tiny ball and you try to get it into a goal. So you can kind of see how it's a little bit like soccer. But at the same time, at its core, at its essence, it is nothing like soccer at all. It's kind of a completely different game. Not only that, but real soccer is much better than foosball. How do you know? Because nobody watches professional foosball tournaments. Those kinds of things aren't broadcast. Stadiums aren't filled so people can watch people playing foosball. Uh, but soccer is much better. Soccer is much more entertaining. Soccer is much more glorious. People enjoy playing soccer more, I would think, or at least people enjoy watching soccer more. And that's why you have all these soccer tournaments and all these fanatics and all these people watching soccer. You see, that's kind of the relationship between this old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is pattern it, patterning itself after something that is real and something that is true. The old covenant is simply a copy or a shadow or an imitation the new covenant is the glorious thing. The new covenant is that which is true, that which is real, that which is better. And Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Now, the old covenant also came with a law, and it instructed the people of Israel on a variety of things. Not only was it about things like morality, but it was also about ceremonial and religious things and practices like uh, how priests should offer sacrifices, when they should offer sacrifices, instructions regarding the overall worship of God in the temple. And even though these things in the Old Testament don't necessarily apply to Christians today, they are important and they are relevant because what these things ultimately do is they point to that greater spiritual reality or what the author calls these heavenly things. 
It's like using foosball in order to teach someone how to play real soccer. And you can do that, right? You can say, in foosball, you have two teams and you have the same number of players on each team. Both teams have a goal. Both teams have a goalie. The object of the game is to get that little ball into the goal. And you can kind of teach the actual game of soccer through even foosball. But at the same time, there's that disconnect because it is not exactly soccer. That's, a, that's one of the ways that the Old Covenant functions. It's, uh, it's showing people uh, the actual and the real. And you can kind of teach people spiritual realities through this Old Covenant although it was incomplete, although it was ultimately insufficient. So now, when we look at it from the perspective of knowing what a real soccer game is like, we can look at the Old Covenant and say, oh, I see what this is pointing to. This is pointing to something that is true and real in heaven, okay? That's a summary from last week. Now, here's the new stuff. All right, last week we said the reason the New Covenant was better than the Old is because it came with better promises. What we're going to do today is we're going to focus on why the New Covenant is better than the Old, and the reason is because it comes with a better sacrifice, okay? Verse 23 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That's where we're going to anchor this whole message and this huge chunk of scripture into that one verse. And we're basically going to ask two questions, okay? The first question is this. Why are blood sacrifices necessary? Why is that something that is prescribed at all? And the second question is, why does Jesus offer a better sacrifice? How is his sacrifice better? So the first question, why are blood sacrifices necessary? I don't know if you ever thought about what it would be like to sacrifice an animal. You know, we live in an urban culture. We get our meat from the butcher or from the supermarket. We, uh, we probably don't actually physically see blood being splattered when animals are being killed. And so, I, you know, I think modern people, especially modern New Yorkers, would probably think about the idea of offering an animal as a sacrifice as being a little bit barbaric and a little bit primitive. Uh, it's something that would be so violent and so traumatic, and it kind of seems like a high price to pay uh, if you have to take the, the life of an animal, right? And I think to an, a certain extent, if that's the way you think, you would be right. The only time in my life where I saw an animal being killed, many, many years ago, I went on a mission trip to Thailand, and I was, <coughs> you know, on this mission trip, one of the things that we did was we went to go and serve an orphanage. And I, w you know, I don't know who made the decisions or you know, where we were getting our information from, but basically the leader of the team was like, we have to buy a pig for this orphanage, right? Someone told us to buy a pig for this orphanage, and uh, it's a live pig, and apparently one pig can feed a lot of kids for a good amount of time. So I don't even know where we got the pig, but we bought a pig for this orphanage, and we went to this orphanage, and the pig came on a truck, and what they said, you know, a pig is a big pig. It's a couple hundred pounds, and they said, we're going to need some... Uh, strong members of the team to come and help and to hold this pig down while we kill it, right? And uh, nobody picked me because I was small and skinny and I look weak, I guess. So I'm just watching this happen and other people are like holding the pig down. You know how they kill a pig? I, I don't know if this is like the proper way to kill a pig, but they take this big sledgehammer and they basically like whack it on the head. And the reason they do that is to stun the pig because if the pig goes crazy, right, you can't control it, you can't kill it in like a... I guess a more humane way, right, in a quicker way. So they, they take the sledgehammer, they smack it on the head, the pig gets stunned, and then someone takes a knife and slits the throat, and then the blood drains, and then you kind of see the pig quickly die. Now, 
if you imagine that, that's, that is a traumatic experience, right? Especially when that sledgehammer hits the head of the pig. I, I was watching this thing, and you see the pig's eyes, like, eyes wide open. And, you know, this happened 15 years ago. I still remember the pig's eyes, right? It is a traumatic experience. And then uh, afterwards, you see, like, the aftermath of what happens. And, you know, like, the guy who slit the uh, pig's, you know, throat to drain the blood, like, his... He's covered literally in the blood of the pig. And uh, think about just animal sacrifices under the Old Covenant, and, and maybe this is kind of something of a, of a common thing. Uh, but that was the only time in my life where I really saw an animal uh, being killed, and you know, it's traumatic. Now, here's what happened. After, you, the, you know, after the pig was killed, uh, what they do is they bo- pour boiling water on the pig because the pig has hair. And this was my job, right? You take a spoon and you scrape the hair off the pig. It was just a weird experience. But here's, here's a weirder thing, right? After we clean the pig off, and then I guess what they do is they chop it up, and they cook the pig, right? And they feed it. So some, some of the people who saw this happen, and then they saw, like, the plate of, like, pork on their plate, like, they're so traumatized. They're like, I don't know if I can eat this. But, you know, you have to eat it because, uh, you know, you're on a mission trip. You're in another culture. Uh, you're in front of kids who have very little to eat, and so to kind of, it's a little bit insulting to kind of say, I, I, I don't want to eat this, or I can't eat this. So everybody just kind of like, right, thinking about what just happened. Uh, it's, you know, animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice, it's a messy, traumatic, violent thing. Now, a Jewish person wouldn't use a pig because, I don't know if you know, but Jewish people aren't allowed to touch pigs according to the Torah, but you can kind of understand the visual of what it would be like to sacrifice an animal. Why is this something that is prescribed then to Israel under the Old Covenant? You ever think about that? Blood sacrifice, like I said, violent, messy, and it can be a traumatic experience. But that's the reason why it's prescribed. You see, it is meant to communicate at least two things. The first thing it's meant to communicate is this. Sin is a serious matter, and the consequences for sin are a serious matter. Uh, If I were to take a guess, I think our problem is we probably don't take sin as seriously as we ought. The only time we take sin seriously is if it causes a major disturbance in our lives or if it causes a major disturbance to those around us. Uh, we take certain things seriously. We'll take adultery seriously. We'll take murder seriously. And if we go a little bit deeper, then we might even take lust and anger seriously. But the reason we take those things seriously probably has more to do with how these kinds of sins affect our relationships and affect us rather than how it affects our relationship with God. So you can imagine what it would feel like to see an animal sacrifice for your sin. What kind of impact would that have on a person to say, this animal, all this blood splattered, right? This trauma, this violence, all done. Why? As a consequence for your sin. Maybe then you kind of get the idea or the picture, wow, my sin is serious, and it leads to serious consequences. Uh, I heard one person say uh, he thought Christianity in America has been disnified. Now, uh, what he meant by that or where he's getting that from is there's this article in The Spectator, which is a you know, magazine or a periodical from the UK. And uh, there's this article by a woman named Mary Wakefield titled, Are Old Fairy Stories Too Scary for Kids? Okay? I'm going to summarize it, but it's, a, it's really an interesting article. 
Uh, basically, what she does is the author examines these old fairy tales, like before the modern Disney era, um, that you know Disney movies and Disney stories have kind of um, maybe taken and made it a little bit less scary. But the author reads these old story, uh, fairy tales, and I think she grew up on a couple of these fairy tales, and she notices a lot of these old fairy tales for designed for children were actually pretty violent and scary and gory. So if you've ever heard of the Brothers Grimm, uh, they have all these fairy tales, and uh, she summarizes this one story called Bluebeard. Bluebeard is about this rich, evil old man, and he persuades this nice young girl to marry him. And he goes off somewhere, but before he goes off, he tells his young wife and gives her one set of instructions. She, he says, you can do as you please, but the one thing that you are not allowed to do is do not look in this little room at the end of the corridor. Do not open its door, okay? Do whatever you want, but don't go into that room. So one day she gets bored, and you know what she decides to do? She goes to the door, she opens it, right? And she goes into that room. You know what she sees in that room? Something horrifying. She sees the corpses of all of her husband's former wives lying in pools of blood. This is a children's fairy tale, right? <laughs> lying in pools of blood. They all died, and what she realizes is they failed the little door test, and therefore I'm the next one that's going to die. Bluebeard returns, and he says, oh, you did the one thing you're not supposed to do. You get a death sentence. He starts to sharpen his axe. Eventually what happens, the bride calls for her brothers. They appear in the nick of time, and they murder this old guy, this monster. Now, what the author does is she uses this, this story as an illustration. She says, you know, when I heard this story as a young child, why wasn't I traumatized by the story? And she says, uh, I think children have a fear of predators already built into them, and what fairy tales can do is it kind of puts a name on uh, that predator. Not only that, what fairy tales do is they, have, uh, they serve kind of like a cautionary tale, and they warn and they teach. They show that there are real consequences for ignoring good advice, or there's real consequences for making poor choices, or there's real consequences for being too distracted with things that aren't important and not noticing that, hey, grandma is a wolf and she's going to eat me, right? But modern stories, she says, tends to soften these consequences. And so here's what she says. In Disneyland, a heroine needs not be on her guard because the good guy always wins. Rapunzel's mother doesn't die. The little mermaid doesn't have to lay down her life but lives happily ever after. It's as if Disney wants to suffocate the reality in folk stories and overlay them with the great usurping American fairy tale, good things happen to good folk and bad folk get their comeuppance. By the way, uh, my family, we're going to Disneyland next week. We'll be in California. But her point is this, the violence and the gore that uh, makes a tale potentially scary and shows children the gravity of and consequences of not doing the right thing. Uh, in American culture, in a Disney-fied culture, uh, what we tend to do is we soften those consequences. And therefore, we say, you know, the Little Mermaid, not listening to your father is not that big of a deal. Things will work out in the end. I think we can say the sacrificial system functioned in a similar way, it had a similar effect. The visual of that blood being sp splattered and an animal dying, what does that communicate? The gravity of sin. Sin has deep consequences. Now, there's another reason 
why blood sacrifices are necessary. So one, it shows the gravity of sin, but another reason is according to verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's interesting. You know, I've heard people ask, why can't God just, you know, snap his fingers and forgive our sin without having, going through the process of Jesus having to die upon a cross? Uh, after all, isn't that the way we oftentimes forgive others? We don't require any kind of blood sacrifice. We just say, okay, I forgive you. Now, I think that's a very naive understanding of what forgiveness actually looks like. But why is the shedding of blood necessary for the forgiveness of sins? A Jewish person who's familiar with the Torah probably has an easier concept, uh, easier time understanding this concept than, let's say, a modern New Yorker. Because in the Torah, in Leviticus chapter 17, 11, what God says is this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood leads to atonement. What is atonement? Atonement is this process of bringing those who are estranged together again in unity. Our sin ultimately makes us estranged from God. Blood sacrifice makes atonement, which means it makes that relationship right again. Now, on a horizontal level, when a Jewish person wronged another person, they weren't required to offer a blood sacrifice. So let me give you an example. If a Jewish person stole $100 from another person, they would be required, this is what justice is, they would be required to pay $100 plus a fifth of its value. So they would owe that person, right, plus interest, $120, and justice would be satisfied. That's how justice is rendered under the Old Covenant in a Jewish culture. But there is a qualitative difference between when you wrong another person, another human, and when you wrong the holy God, the creator of the universe. There's a qualitative difference in that. I gave this illustration before, but I think it's, uh, it explains it best, so let me give it again. You know, I once read this story a while ago about how a, a man got bit by a spider, I think on his leg, and then it got infected or something, and eventually what happened is that leg had to be amputated. So this one little spider bite led to the amputation of this man's leg. Now, let's, let's say you caught that spider, right? You're this man, and you catch that spider. What is justice in that case? Is it saying, spider, you led to my, me losing my leg. Let me take off one of your legs. Boop, right? And you take off one of the spider's legs. Is that justice? Does that feel like justice? No. Right? Because the leg of a human is much more <laughs> important than the leg of an insect. There's a qualitative difference between a person and a spider. Now, what would really probably happen is uh, you would say, spider, you have to die, and you kill the spider, right? Squat, and you probably don't even feel like you still get justice. You know, in that analogy, do you know what we are compared to God? We, we are like the spider, right? So therefore... Um, Eye for an eye, that's, that's a Jewish understanding of justice. Let's say, uh, metaphorically, you take God's eye, it is not the same thing for God to take our eye. It would not even be the same thing for God to take our life. Our life would not even equate justice. And therefore, when we sin against God, if there is going to be any kind of justice, it is not enough to say, well, God, okay, I bit your leg, so here, you take my leg. That's not enough. What our sin against God requires is blood our blood because according to leviticus life is in the blood and what god requires for our sin is our life that is the entire reason why this sacrificial system is set up in the first place because what an animal sacrifice is essentially doing is it's saying this animal whether it's a 
bull, whether it's a calf, whatever it is, on the Day of Atonement, it is saying this, your blood is substituted for my blood. Your life will be substituted for my life. And once a year, the high priest goes with this blood, he splatters the blood, and he says, God, we are going to make atonement for our sin against you with this blood. Now, of course, is the blood good enough? No. That's why they have to repeat it every year. Every year, they got it on the Day of Atonement, go to the most holy place, the high priest, makes a sacrifice, and there's all these other kinds of sacrifice that take place all throughout. Why? Because the blood of animals ultimately, at the end of the day, is not good enough to effect perfect atonement. Without blood, there is no payment of that debt that was created by our sin. Now, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying when he says uh, the blood, when he refers to the blood sacrificial system under the old covenant. He's basically saying this. Jesus offers a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice than the priests of old. A better sacrifice than under the old covenant. Look at verses 11 to 12 with me. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even though the greater and the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. You know what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross? When his blood was being spilt for us? You know what was going on? He was offering himself as a blood sacrifice for the atonement for our sin. You know, the cross, it's supposed to be violent. It's supposed to be traumatic because there is a gravity in terms of the consequences of our sin. Anything less than that would never have satisfied God's requirement for justice. But Jesus is a better sacrifice because his life carries, guess what? The same qualitative weight as God himself. That's why we say Jesus has to be divine. <laughs> Jesus was God, therefore, of one substance and equal to the Father. Therefore, his blood, his sacrifice, is able to accomplish so much more than the blood of goats and calves because Jesus is God. Now, what does Jesus' sacrifice accomplish? Well, let me just name two things. First, it says uh, Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Once for all. The lack of repetition shows the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice and his blood. You know, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about sin, but one of the ways that we can talk about sin is sin is something that makes us unclean. And uh, when you are unclean, there is a sense in which you are relationally repugnant to other people. If you sweat in your clothes, eventually what's going to happen is you are going to stink, right? You are going to smell. And therefore, what you have to do is you've got to do laundry daily or weekly, and you want to wash all that odor out of your clothes. We make our clothes stink, so we have to wash it over and over and over and over and over again. Because if you don't, then you remain relationally repugnant. Sin makes us relationally repugnant to God because what sin does is it makes us unclean. Blood serves as a way to purify and to cleanse the people of Israel from their uncleanness, from their relational repugnance. And because they kept sinning, they offer sacrifices over and over and over again. It's like doing laundry, right? When it says Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, here's what it means. His sacrifice has purified us so much. His sacrifice has made us so clean that we don't have to keep washing our clothes over 
and over and over again to get that repugnant sweat smell out. His blood has so much power that even in the present day that we live, even as we continue to sin, we can in one sense claim we have been made clean because Jesus' blood is that much more superior, cleanses us, purifies us. Jesus dealt with sin once for all. Second thing, Jesus, his sacrifice purifies the conscience. So according to verse 9, it says, uh, the gifts and sacrifices offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And then when talking about the blood of Christ in verse 14, it says it can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, the book of Hebrews is unique in the sense that it, it does mention the conscience more than any other book in the Bible. Uh, what is a conscience? A conscience is like that inward faculty in yourself that determines what is right and what is wrong. It is what gives you a sense of whether you are fit for a person or for a relationship or for a task or whatever it may be. So if you have a conscience and you tell a big lie to somebody, then maybe you're bothered by that big lie because you know deep in your heart you did something wrong. That's your conscience. Maybe you feel unfit to be in the presence of that person and so you know you told this huge lie and it's, it's hard to look that person in the face because why? Because of your conscience. Uh, now, depending on who you are, uh, the burden of having a bad conscience, it can, it can literally make you go a little bit crazy. Uh, if you remember, if you were an English major or if you remember high school English, English literature and you read that Shakespeare uh, play Macbeth, it's a perfect example of that. Macbeth, he murders a king. Lady Macbeth frames others for uh, that murder and so that Macbeth can ultimately become king, so his political ambition overtakes him. Uh, they, you know, they kill a bunch of other people. You know, by the end of that story, you know what happens? Lady Macbeth, she goes a little bit crazy because she is tormented by the guilt that is weighing upon her conscience. And I think it's suggested that at the end, she uh, ends her life. She kills herself because of uh, the torment of that guilt. Now, for someone like that, offering the blood of goats and calves is not really enough to free you from the burden of a conscience, of a bad conscience, of a guilty conscience. There is a sense where you can't, you can't look at God in the face because you know the blood of animals is not enough to make things right. It's not enough to purify your conscience. Hebrews is saying Jesus' sacrifice is better because his blood has great power. And that power has the ability to purify your conscience. His blood so thoroughly cleanses us and makes, uh, makes things right so now we can approach God and we can look at him face to face, so to speak. Yeah, you and I, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our, our rebellion, our anger, our defiance, all of these things, we can still come and approach God and look him face to face. Why? Because the blood of Christ. Jesus was a better sacrifice. You know, in the beginning of our service, we have something called a call to worship. And, uh, you know, half of you are late, so you, you never see it. <laughs> if you have a guilty conscience about that, that's okay. Jesus will purify your conscience. <laughs> In the beginning of our service, we have something called a call to worship. The purpose of that is basically this. God initiates worship, and it's kind of like an invitation. God is saying this. Uh, I know who you are in your sin. I know all, all the ways in which you are messed up. I am calling you to come into my presence and to come worship. And why do we come? Why are we so freely invited? Not because we're worthy friends. Not because we have uh, great singing voices. Not because we had great weeks. We are called, we are invited because Jesus' blood covers us. 
And therefore, there's just a sense of freedom in worship. You know what happens at the end of the service? Something called a benediction. You know what a benediction communicates? That God's face shines upon you. That he has not turned away from you. Now, why can all this happen, right? In our liturgy, we're trying to communicate the, uh, the gospel message itself and the, the application of the gospel. Why can these things happen? Again, Jesus is a better sacrifice. Our sin is made clean. Our consciences are purified. And we can now come freely. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews says, encourages? Approach the throne of grace, not with timidity, with confidence, with boldness. Because you do not approach on your own merit. Jesus has made it possible through his sacrifice. You know, sin is a serious matter, friends. It's serious. From the biggest things to the small, it's not just serious because of what it does to our lives or what it does to our relationships. Sin is a serious matter because God is a holy God. God is a just God. But sin is dealt with because Jesus himself dies. He subjected himself to violence. He experienced the trauma for us. He made atonement once and for all. So what do we do? What do we have to do? Come to him. That's it. Come to him. See him. Fix your eyes upon him. Find your rest in him. If you think Christianity is ultimately a, a, a faith that says do, 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 it's not. Christianity is a faith that says come. You don't serve me. I serve you. Jesus has served you with his blood. Let me end with this illustration. Uh, there is this children's book that I read to my oldest daughter, um, and it, it follows this theme. And basically what it does is it starts with Eden it goes through the, the period of the tabernacle and the temple, and then it ends um, after the resurrection of Jesus. And there's this uh, common refrain that happens on every page, and basically it's this, because of your sin, you can't come in, right? So the Garden of Eden, because of your sin, you can't come in. The most holy place in the tabernacle and temple, because of your sin, you can't come in. And I think little children are supposed to pick up on that. Oh, because of my sin, I can't come in, right? I can't come into the presence of God. But then on the very last page, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know what it says? Because of your sin, you can't come in. But I died on the cross for you, so now all my friends can come in. That's what Jesus' sacrifice does. We can come in to the most holy place, something reserved only for high priests on the Day of Atonement. But now God, by his blood, Jesus, by his blood, sacrifice, invites us to come in, So let's come in and dwell with him. Let's pray together.